Thank you, Lord. Let's get the lights up. How many are happy to be in the house of the Lord today? Um, two things. One, after the service to commemorate our eight years together, um, there's going to be some cake and punch outside. Make sure and get your kids first. <laughs> uh, secondly, you can also sign up for the um, Valentine's Banquet and pay your $45 today. Or you can just sign up today so that we know you're coming. Uh, so that we know how many to, to plan for. Uh, but it's going to be a wonderful time. It's not only for couples, but for singles as well. And there's going to be both the teaching and activities for both couples and singles. So for singles, we're going to have an activity called speed mingling. Not speed dating. Speed mingling. Spingling. That's what we call it. Uh, so it's going to be a lot of time. And we're also going to be joined by our brothers and sisters at Ark Ministries of Berkeley. And so it's going to be a great joint Valentine's uh, meal. Um, I want to ask you a question this morning. Here's my question. You, you know that, uh, you know that, uh, that it's a, a very popular um, little cartoon happens like in cartoons or even in uh, movies, commercials where you're, you, you hit a crossroads and you have a choice between a, something good and something bad. Where is the angel? The little angel appears. Where does the angel appear? On your shoulder. Which shoulder? Right. Your right shoulder. Always on the right shoulder the angel is. And where does the devil appear? The left on the left shoulder. So God comes to your right hand and the devil comes to your left hand, right? Are you sure? I mean, is that really the way it is? Does, does God come to the right hand and the devil to the left hand? You know, I, was, I saw something this week that I'd never seen before. Psalm chapter 16, verse 8. David says, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. The Lord is at my right hand, so I think the devil's going to come to my left hand, right? Zechariah chapter 3 verse 1. Zechariah says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. And this is the word of the Lord. This is the message. This is it. I'm going to give it to you in a nutshell. God and Satan both want to occupy the same place in your life. Satan doesn't attack you at your weakness. See, the right hand is the place of favor, it's the place of faith, it's the place of confidence, and it's the place of strength. Your right hand, you know, how many people are right-handed here? Raise your hand. How many people are left-handed? Come to the altar, I'm going to lay hands right. I've got some oil. I can get you delivered from that. No, my daughter is left-handed. And uh, my dad is left-handed too, but I got blessed with right-handedness. You know, if you attack me on my right side, I will knock you out. I will come with the right hook. Pow! But if you attack me on my left side, you might have a chance. Because my left side is the weak side. But the devil never attacks you on your weak side. He only attacks you on your strong side. He never attacks your left hand. Actually, nobody cares 
No, no real threat, no real enemy would ever attack your weak place. Think about 9-11, right? The suicide bombers, the terrorists, not bombers, but suicide, whatever, the terrorists. Did they strike Compton, California? Did they fly planes into abandoned warehouses in New Orleans? <laughs> you know? I mean, if you heard that, you know, a terrorist attack against an abandoned warehouse in New Orleans. You know, terrorist attack, they flew, flew planes into the projects on 65th and East 14th and East Oakland. You'd be like, I mean, it's kind of, tra I mean, it's tragic because it's a loss of life. You know, people died, but the projects... An abandoned warehouse? What does that do to the country? Like, no, they went after the World Trade Center, the Pentagon. They were going after the White House. You know, when the devil comes to hit you, he doesn't go after the Compton of your life, the Harlem or the New Orleans of your He doesn't try to hit you in the ghetto of your life. He goes after the World Trade Center of your life. He tries to hit you in the Pentagon of your life. He tries to hit you in your strong place. This is Revelation. Let me tell you why it's revelation. Because you thought the place where you're oppressed by the devil is your weak place. Whenever you start talking about the place where the devil's attacking you, you say, I'm weak in this area. I'm weak here. I'm so weak. I'm so weak. Pray for me because I'm weak. This is my weakness. I had a young man come to me the other day. He said, Pastor, I can walk in the spirit all day long, but about 1 o'clock in the morning, the spirit of lust attacks me, and I'm so weak between about 1 a.m. and 4 a.m., and I can't sleep at night because I'm battling this spirit of lust, and I'm strong all day long, but at 1 a.m., that's my weakness. And I said, no, that is not your weakness. That's your strength. That's the strongest time of the day for you. That's why the devil's attacking you there because he knows if the devil stopped attacking you in that place, God would show up at about 1 a.m. and start revealing things and rolling out revelation to you. And he would take you deep in his word and open your eyes. You would get your greatest revelation between 1 a.m. and 4 a.m. See, he doesn't bother attacking you when there's nothing at stake. But when he sees that God's going to show up in that place and do great and mighty things in your life and release you into greater things, he says, i got to attack that place because that's the Pentagon of his life. That's the World Trade Center of his life. I said, you're not weak at 1 a.m. You're strong. You're strong at 1 a.m. You simply have to wake up and realize it. And when you come to grips with that, you will set the Lord there instead of allowing the enemy to stand there and oppose you. You and I have a choice every day whether we're going to set the Lord there at our right hand in our strong place or allow the enemy to stand there and oppose us. Adam and Eve, what was their greatest strength? The ability to hear from God. I mean, they walked with God in the cool of the day. There was no, you know, you know they didn't have to seek confirmation. You don't have to seek confirmation when God is physically manifested and walking with you in the garden. It's like if I, you know, when we talk about confirmation, if I was talking to my wife and I said, baby, I love you. She said, I think I hear Benjamin saying he loves me, but I better seek confirmation. Vivian, does it bear witness with your spirit that my husband said he loves me? Okay, I need one more confirmation. Joseph, does that bear witness with your spirit? And then I still don't believe it. Do you know why we need confirmation? Because we don't think we hear from God clearly. I mean, when somebody next to you talks to you, do you always seek, what if you always sought confirmation? Oh, I better get that confirmed. Baby, I'm hungry. Can you cook something? 
Uh, does anybody else hear that voice? I need confirmation. I need anybody else? Do, are you hearing this? I just want to test this with your spirit. Are you hearing this? Are you hearing my husband saying he's hungry? I just need confirmation. I need, I just, Adam and Eve didn't need no confirmation. You know why? They walked with God in the cool of the day. Hearing from God was their strong suit. That was their strength. I can hear from him clearly, word for word. I know exactly what he's saying. And what he said was, you can eat from every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That tree you don't eat from. And when Satan came to Eve, what did he say? Did God really say that? Did God say that? He attacked her right at her strength. Right at the place of clarity, at every place where you feel like, it's, I'm confused. No, that's your place of clarity. It's absolutely clear. But I'm so confused there. No, you're not. That's a lie from the devil. It's clear. I don't know where to go. Direction is your strength. I'm not sure if it's, this is the Lord or not. That's because discernment is your strength. I don't know if I can, I just, I'm so full of doubt. That's because you have a gift of faith. I'm so sick. You have a gift of healing. Amen. I feel so bound. That's because you're a deliverer. And you're going to set captives free. I'm so timid. Well, there's a lion on the inside of you that's ready to rage. You hearing me? Every place where you're strong, the devil says, I'm going to attack you right there at your strength. Now, when you get this revelation, you'll never feel weak again because you'll wake up at every place. We say, I'm weak here. I'm weak. You wait. No, wait a minute. I'm strong here. This is my strength. This is my strength. You become, that says, the righteous are bold as a lion. Bold as a lion. The lion just walks through the jungle. Not like a deer. A deer will be drinking at the brook, and he's looking around, listening for prayer. He hears a little sound in the bushes. He's gone. <laughs> Some believers are like that, drinking from the brook and looking around. Drinking from the river of delights and God's blessing, but you're looking around. Worship's happening, and the Spirit of God's coming, and you're worshiping, but looking around. Something's coming. I know the devil's coming. He's coming like a lion. He's, no, you're the lion. The righteous is, you know, they say even when you kill a lion, even if you shoot a lion, a lion dies boldly. It doesn't make any sense to him that anything can take him down. He has no known predators. He just walks through the jungle. He hears a noise. He says, it must be my prey. If he hears a noise, he's thinking, oh, good, I get to attack something. <laughs> you know, and if he sees something, he says, oh, good, I'm hungry. It's about, what if we started to act like that? You hear something coming, oh, good, I, God's given me another victory. The devil's coming. Jesus said, the prince of this world's coming, but let him come. He's got nothing in me. He said, in this world, you're going to have tribulation. Don't worry, I've already overcome the world. He said, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. That's why your right hand is the place of faith. Whatever you believe, that's your victory. But here's the thing. The devil will not settle for your unbelief. He wants your faith. That is, if he can get you to believe that he can attack you from 1 a.m. to 4 a.m., then he's got you. If he can get you to believe that you're weak at the very place where you're strong, then he's got you. If he can get you to believe that you're defeated, then you're defeated. If he can get you to believe that you're in bondage, it'll be to you according to your faith. I told you when, I, when we first started this church, the Lord spoke to me so clearly, and he said, it's going to be easy. And then we launched the church, and it was the hardest thing that I ever did before in my life. I thought the Lord had lied or that I had missed him. I'm going to stand up and prophesy, wait, the Lord thy God hath made a mistake. 
<laughs> Oops, saith the Lord. <laughs> I remember after about four or five years, I prayed. I said, Lord, now, you told me it was going to be easy. I'm still waiting for it to be easy. You know, did you miss it? Or did I? Did you not say that? And the Lord said, no, son, I told you it would be easy. I said, then why is it so hard? You know what the Lord said? Because you didn't believe me. You know what you believed? You believed it would be hard. And it has been to you according to your faith. <laughs> you know why you're so broke? Because you got faith for it. <laughs> <laughs> mm. You ever known somebody that would name and claim not healing but illness? Feel a little headache? Oh, I know it's a tumor. <laughs> little indigestion? Oh, I just had a heart attack. Oh, I'm having one. <laughs> name it and claim it the worst things we could possibly find. Just name it and claim it. Gideon, what was his strength? His strength was victory on the battlefield. But when the enemy came at him, what did the enemy? The enemy convinced him that he was timid, afraid, and not able to defeat any enemy. So when you hear the Amalekites and Midianites coming, you better go hide in the wine press with what little wheat you can gather and sit in there and try to thresh it. And when the angel of the Lord came to Gideon, the angel said, Greetings, mighty warrior. But he didn't know that he was a mighty warrior because instead of having the Lord set at his right hand, he allowed the enemy to stand there and oppose him and tell him, you're not a mighty warrior, you're a little punk. <laughs> thinking about it over the last week, you know, you see Adam and Moses, a great juxtaposition. Juxtapose Adam and Moses. God comes to Adam, brings all the animals to him, says, name them. Without hesitation, cow, pig, elephant, tiger. I mean, do you know how many species that is? All of the animals God brought them to, all of them, millions of species, name them. And notice Adam doesn't go, well, wait, 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 hold on, God. I mean, I, I don't know if I can. I mean, are you going to give me some training? I don't have any experience in the field of naming animals or anything, you know? I mean, give me a workshop. Give me some, are you going to give me a prophetic word for every animal? Hold on, let me pray and ask the Lord what to name you. Mm. I'm just going to wait until the Lord speaks to me. You know, there's believers in the body of Christ that have been waiting for decades. I'm going to wait for the Lord to speak to me. As soon as he speaks, I'm going to do something for the kingdom. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to wait. I'm just waiting on the Lord. If Adam operated like that, we still wouldn't have names for some animals. Lord, I don't think I, don't think I can do it. Let Eve do it. <laughs> What, what if I make a mistake? What if I give an animal a wrong name? I could scar an animal for life by giving him a wrong name. And notice he wasn't going, um, cow? No, 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 not, not cow. Now, uh, um, pig. No, 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 not pig. Not pig. Um, uh, goat? Come on, help me, Lord. Instead, God comes to him, brings all the animals, says, name them. He goes, cow, pig, goat, sheep, wildebeest. <laughs> you know, I mean, bam, 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 bam. I mean, no hesitation, no fear of making a mistake. Why? Because if God told me to name them, it means I have the authority to do so. And I can't do it wrong because it is what I say it is. 
says, I'm not naming it prophetically. I'm naming it apostolically. Not by observation, but by decree. You're a cow because I said you're a cow. You're a goat because I said you're a goat. And you're a pig because I said you're a pig. And if I said you were something else, you'd be something else. I can't make a mistake. Why? I'm invested with all of the authority to do what God tells me to do. If God tells me to scale a mountain, it must mean that he's given me the authority and power to scale mountains. If he tells me to climb a wall, it must mean that I have the authority and power to climb a wall. And it doesn't matter if I don't sense that authority and power in myself. God said, do it so I can do it. And I can do it now. Adam didn't say, well, hold on, let me go to animal naming school. I need, see, I need to become an expert in, in, you know, in, in biology and study the different species and what do you call that, zoology. I need to go study zoology for 15 years and get my Ph.D., and then I can come back and name these animals. He says, no, 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 cow, goat, pig, bam, and he doesn't get weary. He doesn't burn out in the ministry after a couple of months. You know, you don't see Adam going, you know, Lord, I've already named 300,000 species. There's like... Uh, 1.5 million to go. I'm tired. I need a sabbatical. I need a rest. I'm worn out, God. I'm not spending enough time with my family. Uh, just, you know, I'm just... I'm just, you're not paying me enough? You know, you never gave me a salary. It never says God paid him. You know, I mean, you know, I need a rest, God. I'm burnt out. I'm tired. I'm tired, God. <laughs> No, he, you know, he just goes, God, I named 6,000 species today. Tomorrow I'm going for 7,000. Bam, I got to speed it up. Bam, 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 bam. Ooh, I got insects today. Okay, let's see. Ant, spider, you know, arachnids. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, he's just going after it. I mean, he's just getting more bolder. And he, you know what? When you know you have authority to do what God's called you to do, you get built up in the process, not torn down. I saw that in John chapter 5, and it blew me away. Jesus ministers to the woman at the well. She goes and gets the whole town. He ministers all, I mean, he's supposed to be resting. Remember, he sent the disciples away. He said, go to McDonald's, give me a 20-piece nuggets, large fries, and a chocolate shake. I know Vivian is over here having conniptions right now. Because, you know. <laughs> and Sylvia's back there about, to, you know, they're going to they're gonna lay hands on me. They're going to anoint me with oil after the service, Right? But he sends, okay, fine, he sends them to In-N-Out. But, uh, you know, so <laughs> while they're gone getting food, he ministers to the woman at the well. She leaves her water pots behind, goes into the town, brings the whole town out. He ministers to the whole town. Revival breaks out. I mean, that takes a long time. Yeah. He's ministering all day long while he's waiting for lunch. Now, somewhere in the middle there, the disciples show up with the food. Now, if it were me, I'd be eyeing that bag of food while I'm preaching to the people. <laughs> And y'all know how I roll. I would just start eating while I was preaching. I'd be like, bring me that bag, bring me that bag. So as I was saying to you guys, as I was saying, you know, the Father loves you. You know, I would just be grubbing on my lunch, you know, or I'd be like, are we going to take a 30-minute break? i got to have my lunch right over here. I just, I'll be back, y'all. I'm not done. i got more to say. But if my lunch just arrived and I've been, been ministering hard, it's a long day. I'm hungry. He just keeps on going. His food's getting cold. And when it's all over, I mean hours, a whole day, it's all over. The disciples say, Lord, we brought you your food. He says, I'm not hungry. Yeah. Said, what are you talking about you're not hungry? You sent us to get you food. He says, but I'm full now. What are you talking about you're full now? He says, I have meat to eat that you don't know anything about. He says, okay, who brought him food? Where's he at? Who brought him food? Somebody in the crowd brought him food. Will you tell that, find that person and tell them? That's, that's our job, okay? 
We're the disciples. Don't be getting in on our territory. Don't be taking over our ministry. Yeah, you stay in your own ministry. We got our ministry. <laughs> Jesus says, will you idiots get over here? They're looking at the crowd all gangster. Jesus, you guys come over here. He says, nobody brought me food. Then how is it that you're full? He says, my meat is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. You hear what Jesus is saying? After a long day of ministering and serving the Lord, I don't go home broken down and empty and shriveled like a raisin. I go home full and satisfied. Oh. I'm so full. What are you full? How are you full and satisfied? I've been serving the Lord all day long. Yeah. I've been ministering to people. I've been serving the Lord all day long. You know what, what drives me crazy is when people talk about the ministry like it's the worst thing. Right. I'm glad I'm not a pastor. Why? It's awesome. I wouldn't trade it for the world. I love it so much I had to add a second church. <laughs> One wasn't enough. I needed more. <laughs> Adam is not burnt out and worn out. Yeah. And Adam is not insecure and feeling inferior and inadequate and I need some training. Adam just, bam, serves the Lord. But Moses, yeah. Moses, go stand before Pharaoh and say, let my people go that they may worship me. Um, yeah, I think you got the wrong guy. I, I, you know, I, I, don't, I don't have the oratory skills. <laughs> Moses, all I said to, to say is, you know, uh, let my people go. Four words. You don't have the skill to say four words? You know, we overcomplicate things. When God calls us, we think it's going to be a lot more complicated than it is. Well, I don't know. Am I prepared for that? Uh, just say four. Repeat after me. Let my people Go. Can you say that? It took more oratory skill to say, I don't talk so good. I have a stuttering problem. It took, it took more energy to resist the calling of the Lord than it did to submit to it. Uh-uh. Why don't you, why don't you call my brother Aaron? Use my brother Aaron. And at that point, when he suggested, Lord, send somebody else, it said the anger of the Lord burned against Moses. Now that's scary. I, said, I never had the anger of the Lord just burn against me. You ever been in the prayer closet and you said something to tick God off, <laughs> and you just knew the Lord was ticked, and because you felt His anger burning against you like hot fire? I never had that happen. If that happened to any of you, I, I mean, I'm sorry, because that's, that's not a good feeling. I just can't imagine that that's fun. You know, the anger of the Lord burned against Moses, and then God says, okay, your brother Aaron is coming. I'll put the word in you, your mouth. You put it in his mouth. And when Moses abdicated his place and gave it to Aaron, that's what opened the door for the idolatry that happened when they came out of Egypt. Because Aaron shouldn't have had any authority. But he led the people into idolatry. 
When you abdicate your place in the kingdom of God and somebody else steps into a place, listen, there's people stepping into places in the house of God that shouldn't be in those places because the people who should be are not there. Why is Moses so broken down? When God says, do it, why does he feel like he can't do it? Because he's living in the wrong narrative. You know, the Lord was showing me that there's two narratives in our lives. And we were talking about this at the Ark Retreat last weekend. I, the Lord reminded me that when I was nine years old, I was at a, a, a church service and Dr. Sam Huddleston was the speaker and he laid his hands on me and I was filled with the Holy Spirit. I mean, it changed my life. He laid his hands on me and bam, I was overwhelmed with the power of the Holy Spirit. I spoke in tongues. I, just, I was trumpeting in tongues. I mean, it's just powerful. This moment changed my entire life. But the same year, I went on a camping trip with my school up to Mission Spring and my friend James Bell was there. Now James Bell, he was the same height as me when we were standing up. When we sat down, he was about a foot taller than me. Because James Bell was big. Like, never mind. James, <laughs> Bell, James Bell was big. James Bell was more than double my weight. My same height, but more than double my weight. Now I love James. We laughed together. We told jokes together. He was a funny guy. I was a funny guy. We made each other laugh. We would just sit. And he lived like his house was like right behind my house, and so you know, right on the next street. And so we we hung out all the time. He was my best friend. But I didn't play with James Bell. I mean physically. I didn't you know I didn't wrestle with him. I would wrestle with others, but I didn't mess with James Bell. You know I, I was too scared to. I knew it was too dangerous. My life was in danger. <laughs> Well, I experienced that at Mission Springs because James Bell decided to play with me without my permission. You know? So he grabs me by the arm and starts to swing me. Now, when my feet left the ground, I knew something was wrong. You know, as I'm swinging through the air, just flying through the air, I'm thinking, this could be bad. Well, it was worse than I thought because James Bell, somehow I slipped out of his hand and I fell on the ground right in front of him, and then he slipped in the grass. The grass was wet, and he fell right on top of me. Now, I was sitting up when he fell on top of me, and so it crushed my body. It just collapsed my body in half. And uh, when James Bell rolled off of me, you know, he, he got up laughing like it was the funniest thing that ever happened to him, you know? This is, this is a fun day. I ought to do this more often. Well, I was still on the ground, and I actually could not get up. And you ever got the wind knocked out of you? You ever got hit in the stomach so hard that you couldn't breathe? Well, I was on the ground just, <laughs> you know, I couldn't breathe. I literally thought for a minute there that I was going to die. Now, when the, you know, when the, when the smoke cleared and I actually realized I was not going to die, thank, thank the Lord, uh, I, I still couldn't get up. When my breath actually came back, I found that my legs didn't work. I couldn't get up. And so the counselor was there and he pulled me up and stood me on my legs. I couldn't straighten my body up. I was stuck like this. And I couldn't walk. Couldn't put any weight on my legs. So he had to carry me down the camp. So he carried me down into the camp, and he took me into my room, and he dropped me on my bed. And then he said, okay, let's go, everybody. And they all left. And they went out, and they just, con just continued with the camp. They left me laying in there. And <laughs> it took me a few weeks to be able to walk again. It took me a few weeks to be able to walk again. It took me several months to be able to fully straighten up again. And it took me more than a year to be able to run and play with my friends again. Now, prior to that experience, I was one of the boldest athletes in the whole school. I was in the fourth grade. I was the only fourth grader that the sixth graders allowed to play tackle football with them. And I, would, I, I didn't care. I was fearless. I felt like it was impossible for me to be physically harmed in the fourth grade. 
You know, my grandmother lived in the projects on 65th and East 14th and the Lockwood projects in Oakland, California, and she would go to the Eastmont Mall, which was a couple miles away, but she would walk, and it would take her all day. Literally, she'd leave at about 7 o'clock in the morning and come home about 8, 9 at night. It would be dark when she'd come back because she walked, and she walked about this fast. You know, and so I would go outside and play with the kids in the neighborhood. We'd play tackle football. I was fearless. I'd get in fights out there because kids were cheating and, you know, didn't realize I was in the ghetto and could get shot. It just didn't cross my mind as he's cheating, so I'm going to take him out. You know, I was fearless. I was utterly fearless. I was playing uh, football with the sixth graders when I was a fourth grader at school, and I never forget the day I took down Hung Su. Hung Su was a big old Japanese kid, and he was about, he was about six, maybe five foot eight, and I was maybe four foot eight. Or, or shorter, and he was big and husky, and he was running in for a touchdown. I came up behind him, bam! Man, I put him on his back, and everybody's like, "Oh, he took down Hung Su!" I was like, "Yeah, that's right." You know, I was, I was just, I was just fearless. I didn't care who it was. After this experience, after James Bell fell on me or ne- nearly killed me, I was a scared. I was a scared and timid, I, and that, in that sense of scaredness, that that's fear. That insecurity, it crept into every area of my life. I was not just scared that I would be physically harmed. I was scared that I'd be kidnapped. I was scared that I'd be beat up in the streets by thugs. I was scared that I'd get shot for, you know, for random reasons. You know, my brothers and I would be walking home, and there'd be a man, just a man, you know, just walking down the street. And I'd think, oh, no, he's going to kidnap us. Come on, brothers. And we'd cross the street. You know, like, What's your problem? I'm saying, he's a pedophile. Stay away from that man. You know what I mean? I was just scared of everything, scared of everything, scared somebody's going to break in our house and kill us all. I was scared, you know, I was scared of everything, and I'd never regained that confidence in athletics or anything else and I thought back on it I thought at the very point where God was marking me with power and authority for his kingdom the enemy was marking me with fear and intimidation at the very point that God was sowing seeds of authority and of power and of strength and of future, the enemy was marking me with seeds of fear and of intimidation. And, of, and this, this dual narrative started in my life from that day. And it began to weave its way through my life like the wheat and the tares. There was this narrative of empowerment where God's empo- God, I had all of these experience after experience after experience after experience where God empowered me and lifted me up and took me to this high place. And then experience after experience after experience of rejection and of hurt and of Fear and intimidation and inferiority and it was like the wheat and the tares growing up together and it came to a head when I was 27 or 29 years old my wife and I were in Korea in the airport at the prayer chapel about to fly into Banda Aceh in the northern tip of Sumatra and we were going to preach the gospel there in this place of deep uh, it was a Muslim stronghold and there was about a thousand Christians there that had never been persecuted and the Lord spoke to me and said you tell the church in Banda Aceh to get ready because persecution's coming but tell them not to be afraid because I'll be with them And instantly fear seized my heart. And I said, God, I can't tell him that because I'm afraid. And instantly God took me back and I saw uh, David standing before Samuel the prophet. And Samuel poured the horn of oil over his head and the spirit of God came on David. And then I saw myself at nine years old standing before Dr. Samuel Huddleston and he laid his hands on me. And I was filled with the Holy Spirit. And God said, what I did for David on that day, I did for you on that day. And then God began to take me back through my life and show me all of these times when his spirit was poured out on me. And God said, I chose you. I chose you. I chose you. You know what God was doing when I said I was afraid? I went back into this narrative of fear. This 
this narrative of inferiority, this narrative of pain. I'm going to be hurt. Something bad's going to happen. I'm going to be crushed again. I'm going to be broken again. And I was over here in fear. God, I can't do it. I, you're telling me to name the animals, but I can't name them. You're telling me to go stand before Pharaoh, but I can't do it. You're telling me to go strengthen the churches, but I can't do it because I'm going to be hurt and I'm going to have pain and I'm going to be rejected again and, and, and I'm going to feel ashamed and, and, and I, I just can't be hurt again. I was in this narrative of inferiority and pain and God said, get over here into this narrative of power. I've been preparing you for this day for more than 20 years. Each and every one of us, if I invited you up one by one, you could tell the story of those two narratives running through your life. The one narrative, God is standing at your right hand. And like David, you could say, I set the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand. When you're in that narrative, nothing can shake you. It's like being in the zone on the basketball court. When you're in that narrative, nothing can shake you. When you're dwelling over here in this place where you see woven like a tapestry through your life, God moving on your life, God empowering you, God strengthening you, God preparing. You know, all Adam had in his memory was God forming him out of the dust of the ground, breathing into his nostrils the breath of life, and he becomes a living soul. In his first moment of conscious awareness, he's face to face with God, full of the Holy Spirit. A man face to face with God full of the Holy Spirit can do anything God tells him to do. But you know what was fresh in Moses' memory? Trying and failing, getting thrown out of Egypt, running for his life, living as a sheep herder out in the wilderness of Sinai, separated from everything. All he had was this narrative of 40 years of failure. Growing up as the only Hebrew boy, and God says, I want to pull you out of that narrative. All you remember is how you failed and how you've been living out here in the desert, sulking in your failure for 40 years. But I want to remind you that I am that I am. I was the God that separated you when you were a baby, and Pharaoh tried to kill your entire generation. But I had you hidden in a raft and put down the Nile River, and I, sh- I shielded you and put you in Pharaoh's house. You need to come out of that, that narrative of inferiority. Lord, I can't do it, and I can't talk so well. Come back into that narrative of empowerment. God, you separated me for a purpose. I shouldn't even be here right now. I should have died as a baby, but I'm here, so that must mean you set me apart for something. If you say I can do it, I can do it. Last night at the Ark, my spiritual father, Pastor Daniels, was preaching there, and and I set up a dinner at about 5 o'clock for the pastors, the assistant pastors, to come and have dinner with him and his wife, and so we gathered at the restaurant, and we got there a little bit late. The parking was terrible, and by the time we ordered, it was already 5.30, and the service was supposed to start at 6.30, but pre-service prayer was supposed to start at 6, and I normally lead it, and I looked around. All the pastors are at the table, so there's no pastor to lead pre-service prayer, and so I said, well, we're going to be late. We're going to miss pre-service prayer. What, who can I give it to? And I thought, Henry, I'm going to give it to Henry. And so I I immediately called Henry. I said, Henry, you need to run pre-service prayer at 6 o'clock. You got it? He said, I got it. I said, cool. And I hung up the phone. And and somebody at the table said, what did he say? I said, said, he said, I got it. And they said, wow, he's a new man. He used to be so timid and fearful. And, you know, he would never expect that uh, that kind of responsibility. I said, Henry can do it. He's got it. Immediately when he and I hung up the phone, all that confidence left him. And he texted me and he said, I delegated it to somebody else. See, it sounds official, right? Delegation, right? No, I delegated it to somebody else. Is that okay? In my heart, I knew it wasn't going to work anyway, so I wrote him back and said, yeah, that's fine, but if that person falters, you step in and lead it. See, I knew that person couldn't do it because I hadn't sent them to do it. I hadn't authorized them to do it. I hadn't called them to do it, but I knew he could do it because I'd sent him to do it. So sure enough, so after service was over, he walked up to me and he goes, how did you know to ask me to lead prayer? I said, what are you talking about? 
He said, I mean, why would you ask me? There's so many other people who are more spiritual than I, more experienced than I, got a better voice than me that could lead prayer. Why would you ask me? I said, you were the first person that came to my mind, and I knew that you could do it. He said, but how did you know that I could do it? I said, I knew that you could do it because I told you to do it. And you can do what I tell you to do. He said, but I don't get it. He said, do you know what happened? I said, no, what happened? He said, the other person got up and started to lead prayer, and they faltered within two minutes, and they were looking at me like, what do I do? I said, without thinking, I jumped up and said, we're going to pray for this, and everybody started to pray. And then I said, now we're going to pray here, and everybody started to pray. And I said, now the Lord is saying this, and everybody began to pray. He said, it just flowed. That's never happened to me before in my life. How did that happen? I said, I'll tell you how it happened. Psalm 127, like arrows in the hands of a warrior, so are the sons of a man's youth. The arrow can never say, I can't hit that mark. It's the warrior that holds the arrow that determines where it goes. I said, you know why you hit that mark? Because I lifted you up in my bow and I pulled it back and I shot you at it. You couldn't miss it. Amen. And he goes, wait a minute. Is that like sonship? I said, exactly. He said, is that what's happening here? I said, yes, you are my spiritual son and I'm your spiritual father. And he goes, I don't know what to say. He looked like he was going to cry. I don't know what to say. I said, you can do anything I tell you to do. If I tell you I'm going out of the country for a month and you're going to run the church, you can do it. You know why? Because I told you you can do it. Amen. You know what? That's God gives us those opportunities to experience that in the church so that we understand that when he directly speaks, if he speaks to you and says, I'm sending you to this country and I want you to turn it upside down, you can do it. Why? Because God said so. You've got to come out of the narrative of the tares and come into the narrative of the wheat. You know the parable of the wheat and the tares, Matthew 13, 24 through 30? Jesus said there was a man who went out and sowed wheat in his field, but he went to sleep that night and an enemy came and sowed weeds in that field. And when it started to grow, the wheat and the tares were growing up together, the weeds. And his servant said, Master, what do we do? Look at the weeds growing in amongst the wheat. Where did this come from? And the master said, an enemy did this. And they said, well, what do we do? He said, let the two of them grow up, grow up together. When the time comes to harvest them, we're going to go and pull them all up together. We're going to separate the tares and burn them. And we're going to take the wheat and put it in my barn. Listen, I know the, 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 the ultimate application of that has to do with the end of the age, but I'm saying that the Spirit of God is applying that to you today, that in your life the wheat and the tares have grown up together. The narrative of empowerment and the narrative of destruction, that which the enemy has sown in your life and that which God has sown in your life, they've grown up together, but God says it's time for the harvest, and I'm getting ready to gather the two and separate the tares and remove it from your life. And God says I'm pulling you out of that narrative of destruction altogether, and you're going to learn how to live in the narrative of empowerment and God is breaking insecurity and inferiority off of you he's taking you out of that place of self-consciousness and bringing you into the place of self-confidence he's removing from you every question and every doubt every bit of shame and every bit of condemnation and he's establishing you in the truth Amen. pastor Daniel said last night he said you know somebody told me I'm cherry-picking said because I go through the Bible and I only accept the good scriptures he said but why would I accept the bad scriptures when they're very clearly addressed to the wicked <laughs> I will destroy you from the face of the earth like I'm going to receive that. Yes, Lord, you're going to destroy me from the place of the face of the earth. I will wipe you off the face of the earth the, man, the way a man wipeth a dish. I'm just going to receive that. He said, that's not even addressed to me. 
He said, you've forgotten that you've been declared righteous in Christ. You're not supposed to receive what God has laid up for the wicked. You're supposed to receive what he's got laid up for the righteous. He said, I'm, I'm authorizing you. Go through the Bible and only receive the good ones. <laughs> All right, I'm going to bring this in for a landing. Going back into that narrative of empowerment, when I was about 11 years old, a couple of years later, I had a revelation at the end of a church service. I was standing there, and the pastor said, everybody stand and let's sing hymn number such and such. And so we all started to sing. And all of a sudden, I saw up above the podium, I saw light. And at that moment, I knew that the light represented my life, where I was right then. And all of a sudden, I was taken forward about 10 years, and the light got bigger. And then I was taken forward about 10 years and the light got bigger. And I was taken forward and forward and forward and the light got bigger and bigger and bigger. And then I was taken to the moment of my death. And all of a sudden I crossed over into glory and there was nothing but light. Amen. And I stood there and just wept and wept and wept. The joy was out of control. And I just was saying in my heart, God, my entire life is nothing but light. And it's going to get brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter every single day. It's going to get brighter and brighter. I saw God revealed to me that my life is nothing more than ever increasing stages of light. Do you know that the enemy wants to convince you otherwise? When the enemy stands at your right hand, he gives you a revelation of darkness and shows you your life. It's dark right now and everything's bad. You say, how you doing? Oh, it's bad. It's dark. You know, I don't have any money in the bank and I'm, you know, my mom is mad at me and my, my wife is mad at me and my sisters are mad and I, don't, I can't get along with my job and it's just dark. And then you're taken forward and what do you see in your future? Well, you know, if it's bad now, wait till Social Security kicks in and then I'm all alone and I'm just... And then my hearing stops, and then I start losing my vision, and then I'm going to lose. It's like what, you, what we think about in the future is what we're going to lose. Oh, I'm going to lose my memory. Oh, I'm getting older. I'm going to lose my memory. I'm going to lose my vision. I'm going to lose my sight, and then I'm going to lose my teeth. And then, you know, when that happens, then, then you know, one by one. I'm gonna, it's like all we think about is we just have this expectation that our life is nothing more than ever-increasing stages of darkness. God wants to take you out of that narrative and take you into the light. And you know how you, you, know how you learn how to live in this narrative? You learn how to steward your memory. You know what memory is? Memory is a form of stewardship. And if you are rehearsing in your mind the memory of your hurt and your pain and your rejection and your fear and your intimidation and everything that has gone wrong in your life, you are stewarding the memory of that whole narrative of destruction and you are meditating on everything that the enemy has done to destroy you it becomes your meditation day and night and you can't get out of it you know the thing about memory is that it's a powerful thing you actually begin to relive the thing that you memorize you just begin to relive it over and over and over and over again and you know what you find that there's no end to it you think I just need to kind of get this out of my system so I need to let it go and so I just remember I called to mind I can't believe this person did this to me and I can't believe that that person did that to me in the third grade and I just can't believe that how could they have done that to me it hurt me so bad and I just meditate on that you know what Jesus did just before he died this is what he gave his disciples a piece of bread a little cup of wine he said this is my body and this is my blood do this in remembrance of me. Jesus said, let me tell you the memory that I want you to steward. I want you to steward the memory of what I did. 
I want you to steward the memory of the power that was released when I died on the cross. I want you to steward the memory of the fact. I want you to steward the memory that I broke every power of bondage. You can come over here and meditate on everything that's, in, that's bondage in your life, or you can come over here to the cross and meditate on the fact that I broke it all on the day I hung on the cross between earth and heaven, that I, it was nailed to me. Meditate on the fact that your sins have been taken away. Meditate on the fact it's all been nailed to the cross. You know, this morning as I was on the way here, I was praying about my debt, and I said, God, you know, th there's, there's debt. I just need it removed. Would you just break the back of it? And the Lord spoke to me so clearly and said, Son, it was all nailed to the cross. Amen. Every form of debt was nailed to the cross. You don't bear it anymore. And all of a sudden I realized, oh my goodness, it's not just the stewardship of my finances that breaks the back of debt. It starts with the cross of Jesus Christ. That's where he bore in his body. He took the penalty for every one of my debts and every one of my sins. We learn to live in the narrative of empowerment. We learn to call to mind the works of the Lord. We know, and that's what, that's what uh, Isaiah said in my favorite passage of Scripture there in Isaiah chapter 12. He said, sing to the Lord, call upon his name, make known among the nations what he has done. I don't know about you, but I'm not going to live my life making known everything that the devil has done. I'm not going to preach about the works of the devil and say, oh, the devil did this and the devil. I'm going to make known what the Lord has done. I'm going to steward the memory of his righteousness and of his intervention and I'm going to live in that narrative of empowerment I'm not going to allow the devil to stand at my right hand and oppose me I'm going to set the Lord before me like David said in Psalm 16 8 and because he's at my right hand I will not be shaken and I'm going to remember that at every place where it looks like I'm weak I'm strong at every place where the devil attacks you it's not your weakness it's your strength. And through faith, even your weaknesses become strong. Amen. But through unbelief, even your strengths become weaknesses. Let's pray. Mm.